So I figured out something really profound. Since, since the beginning of biblical history, God has been in the business of calling people to be weird. I'm serious. He's always been in the business of calling us to weirdness. Throughout history, God has done all kinds of crazy things with human people. For example, he called Abraham to leave his family behind and all of his gods, everything he ever knew, which is completely weird. He told Abraham to kill his only son, which is extremely weird for both Abraham and Isaac. He spoke through burning bushes and, and wind and towers of smoke and towers of fire, which is just... Think how weird that would be if that just showed up in Bellingham. He took a group of slaves, people without an identity. He chose them to be his representatives on the earth, which is really weird. We would never do it that way. And then he chose, uh, he, he led those people out from captivity into a desert and gave them weird food called manna, which means, what is it? That's weird. God's prophets were weird too. Some went around naked and they cooked their food using their own dung. That's weird. And some, uh, some of these prophets ate bugs. Some, uh, some, when they were made fun of, called out bears to eat the kids that were making fun of them. I mean, these are some weird dudes. Even God, I think, is a bit weird. The all-powerful creator of the universe came to earth and became a man. Born to an unmarried girl in an oppressed people into a Roman-occupied territory in the feeding trough of a stable. And he was first visited not by dignitaries and special people, but by shepherds and pagan astrologers. You couldn't make this stuff up. God, I think, wants us to be weird. Seems he always has. When God calls a people... He calls them to trust and follow Him, which means that we are going to stand out. We're going to look weird. When we trust and follow God, it's going to look weird to those around us who do not follow and trust God. We might call it countercultural, but I think that's just a nice way of saying weird. Now the great thing is that once you get used to being weird like Jesus, life takes on a whole new dimension. Love gets deeper. Purpose, more clear and inspiring. Beauty becomes richer. Thanksgivings are given more frequently and more earnestly. Hope tends to replace despair more often. Pain becomes more real, but less debilitating. Sorrow becomes deeper, but also spurs us on to more love. In John's Gospel, Jesus calls this quality of life, abundant life. It sounds really weird compared to what the world would say is abundant life. One of the most succinct and powerful manifestos uh, Jesus ever gave us into the abundant life is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. The weird thing about Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is that before Jesus gives us this great outline of, a, of the life we can have, he first of all, invites us into this new kingdom free of charge. He says you don't have to be a certain smartness or a certain socioeconomic level, a certain gender. You don't even have to start out at a certain religion. What you need to do is recognize that you need Jesus more than anything in the world. That's called a penitent heart. And then you turn around from the way you were living and you say, Jesus, I want to follow you. That's called repentance. That's it. That's what he asks us to do. That's what he requires of us to enter the kingdom of heaven. You don't need 
a certain amount of money. You don't need anything else but the right heart attitude. It's called being poor in spirit. It's called recognizing more than anything in the universe, I need Jesus. Well, once, once he's, he's established this grace, this amazing entry point into his kingdom, he begins to teach us about the new life that he's making available to us. Freedom in our hearts from bitterness and anger. Freedom in our sexual lives from addiction. Healthy marriages, fidelity in committed marriages, authenticity in speech and keeping our word. Which brings us to the close of chapter 5, which we are ambitiously going to cover all 10 verses today, which is crazy as I tried to write this message. Um, forgive me in advance. I think you'll see how these 10 verses fit together though. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we uh, hear the gospel of Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 through 48. And in those verses, Jesus continues his teaching and he says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give him your, give him your coat also. If anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do that? Therefore, you are to be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. We better pray. Jesus, I've been living in this word all week, studying as best I can the nuances of the Greek looking for loopholes and ways through this incredibly different, difficult minefield. There's really no way around it. You call us to something incredibly different than we're used to, to something incredibly unnatural to us. And you give us the dignity in calling us to these things. You give us the dignity of actually believing we can. Of course, with your help. And so we ask for your help as we enter into this text and wrestle with what it means for us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us open minds, open hearts, and courage to follow you. Amen. You may be seated. Let's, let's be honest just from the get-go. I, I think up until this point, we've seen that Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount have been extremely difficult. Some of them feel impossible to some of us, you know. But I think we can at least agree that Jesus' teachings make sense. Like, I, as hard as it is to, to let go of all the bitterness and anger in our lives, 
doesn't that really sound good? And, and, and as much as hard as it is to deal with our issues with lust and, and sexual temptation, wouldn't it be great to be free from every uh, kind of sexual bondage that there is out there? And infidelity in marriage, wouldn't it just, it would be great to have perfect committed relationships all the time and to be so, I guess, at peace with who we are in Christ that we, we always speak simply and speak the truth. I think that would be incredibly freeing. But then we get to the end of chapter 5 here. We get to these verses about turning the other cheek and loving enemies and being perfect. And, I mean, you can see why I named this ti- uh, the sermon title. Is he serious? Not only are these teachings at the end of chapter 5 incredibly difficult. Listen, I'm not even so sure I want them to be real in my life. I mean, think about this. Are you jumping up and down to turn the other cheek and make yourself vulnerable? Does that sound like something you would just love to do? I mean, I'm not even sure we really want these completely. What about those who have deeply hurt us? What about justice? And to add insult to injury, as if all these teachings weren't hard enough, Jesus says we're to be perfect, like the Father. You know, like God? What do you do with that one? Is he serious? Following this kind of stuff sounds more than weird. It sounds insane. So we have our work cut out for us this evening as we're going to dive into this passage. Before we get up to our elbows in this stuff, let's remember the bigger picture, shall we? Just prior to his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was proclaiming what? The arrival of the kingdom of God. A new era in history. And he's inviting people to join in this new movement, to repent To live as though it were true that Jesus really is king and in charge. The author and God of all history. The arrival of the kingdom is great news. We call it the gospel or good news, right? And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a description of the quality of life we can live in that kingdom. So the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, is good news. All right? So that means that this text we're going to wrestle with this evening is good news. Let's find out how. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That sounds barbaric in our world, right? It just so happens that it's one of the oldest and most civilized law codes known to man. It's about 2,600 years old. You see, prior to God giving this law of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth... The ancient Near East was like the Wild West. In the ancient Near East, the cultural currency of the day was honor and shame. It's very different than in our culture. In our culture, um, the currency is money. So if you have a lot of money, you can be a complete jerk or a scoundrel and still be pretty high on the social scale. You can buy your way into anything you want Almost, right? In Jesus' day and in the ancient Near East, even all the years before Jesus, honor and shame were your currency. Your reputation was your currency. And there's certain things you could do to up your honor score. Just think of it like a credit score. So you could be a man. Sorry, ladies, some people were just born with it. In that culture, men had this more of this honor stuff. You could advance your honor by being connected to the right family, by having the right name. You could be known for your hospitality, for blessing 
blessing people as they come into your town and housing them and feeding them more than they could possibly eat. You could increase your honor by defending those weaker than you, by defending your family members, by being loyal to one another. And then there's certain things that could diminish your honor, like being shamed in public by losing a public argument. Uh, You could be disloyal to your family. That would bring your honor rating way down. Exposing too much skin in those days, even for the men, uh, could be grounds for great dishonor. In those days, if someone publicly challenged you and dishonored you, there was more at stake than just like, you know how like we tell our kids, to just tell the bully, just ignore the bully because, you know, they won't, they won't want to keep making fun of you anymore if they don't get anything out of it, right? That kind of works in our culture, sort of, unless you're the kid getting bullied, but... In, in, this, in this day and age, if someone publicly shames you, like your whole reputation, your whole uh, credit score in your village or your land goes down. And so what would happen is someone would insult you and then you would retaliate. So you might punch them and break their nose and then you go home. Well, the next, the next week what happens is the, the person you broke their nose, they, they come out with their brothers and they fight you and your brothers. Just a fist fight, but on accident somebody gets maimed in your family. So the next week, you come back with your brothers and your cousins, and you kill one of their family members. And now you see what you've got. You've got a vendetta. You've got a blood war. I mean, you see this happening over and over again. Um, Think Deep South and some of those family feuds that that would go on even in our nation's history. Uh, But think Godfather, right? The, The film series there. I mean, it's just violence and pride beget more and more violence and pride until basically no one's left standing from your family anymore. So God gave a law to stop these vicious circles of violence and revenge. He told the leaders of Israel that the punishment has to fit the crime. If someone gouges out your eye in a fight, you can't then go retaliate and take revenge and kill somebody. You can't escalate it. You just take them to court, and then their eye gets gouged out. Compared to the bloodbaths that were happening, this was actually an incredibly civilized law. But the eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth law was never God's ideal intent for our coexistence. The law was there to prevent further harm to one another, just like the law to give a a woman a certificate of divorce was a concession that God made because of our hard-heartedness. God never intended divorce to be part of his marriage plan, and he never intended poking people's eyes out or kicking their teeth out to be part of how we relate to one another. It's basically a stopgap because we're not good at getting along. But behind this law is a greater ethic, and the ethic is, of course... Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's all about getting behind the law to the ethic. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, you remember between the meat of Jesus' teaching, he starts off with, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then after the meat of the teaching, he ends with the statement, Therefore, Treat people in the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Treat people the way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Everything else in between are examples of that. And you just, I, I just got to take a side note. You just got to appreciate how good a teacher Jesus is. 
All right? Especially for you teachers. Think how Jesus is bookending this incredible sermon. Um, anyway, I just get all giddy about that. I think sometimes we, we wrongly think that Jesus is this kind of like benevolent guy who, who's homeless, but he's really nice, but he's not very smart. He's incredibly smart. The smartest man who ever lived. And this teaching is incredibly sharp as well. So with that in mind, let's have a look at what Jesus is saying here. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. And right there, I just, I've got problems with that, right? We immediately have issues with that statement. Do not resist an evil person. First of all, there's the way it's translated. And the way it's translated has led to many problems. Some have taken this very literally and hurt others in the process. There's a story of one monk, uh, I think a contemporary of Martin Luther's, who who took this so literally that he had head lice and he would let the lice just keep biting him. He wouldn't shampoo his hair out because he didn't want to resist these evil things. So he just was completely passive and let all this stuff happen to him. It's pretty gross, but he never got married. But anyway, well, he was a monk, so. But this, it doesn't make much sense on a, on a broader level. You know, that's one thing we have to be careful of. You can't take a teaching of Jesus and say, well, that doesn't work out in our world, so let's not follow it. That, we don't get to do that. He's Jesus. He, we get to follow what he says. The reason it doesn't make much sense to just sit there and not resist any evil is because Jesus himself strongly resists evil. I mean, right before this teaching, he's casting out demons from people. And uh, you're going to read story after story as you keep going in Matthew and the rest of the Gospels of him, of him not only like confronting uh, leaders who are teaching evil things, but like really being sometimes insulting to them, like to shake them up a little bit. So he actively confronts evil. And then later on in the New Testament, we see early church leaders like Peter and Paul resisting evil and confronting people. At one point, Peter kind of took a few steps back in his faith. And so Paul publicly confronts Peter. And you know what the word for confront is? It's the same Greek word that's behind this resist here. So so either Jesus is teaching something he's not following himself and none of the, the early church leaders are following or we're missing something here. In fact, Jesus' own brother James, who became the leader of the Jerusalem church, says in his little his epistle, which is in scripture, that we are to resist the evil one. So what is Jesus saying here? How do we read this? You've got to read it in context. The law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is there to prevent revenge-laden violence. It's there to prevent revenge-laden violence. Jesus is saying that the ethic behind his law is love. And he's calling us here to do away with revenge altogether. In none of the ways that Jesus confronted evil, in none of the ways that Peter and Paul confronted evil, were they vengeful or spiteful or doing it for themselves. They were always doing it for other people. They were confronting evil, but they weren't doing it out of revenge. And that's a huge difference. You see, Jesus is so smart. He knows how intoxicating revenge can be. You know what I'm talking about? When we are on the war path, either through physical violence or passive aggressive violence or gossip or simply enjoying hating someone in an effort to hurt them emotionally, we become slaves to revenge. And there's all kinds of ways this plays out. You know what I'm talking about. 
Think of how many narratives, books and songs and films are stories about revenge. Why do you think they're so popular? Because I think all of us have a deep sense that there's injustice in the world that isn't getting taken care of by the people who are supposed to be taking care of it. So we, we enjoy these narratives because we can live vicariously through them. Our kids uh, are five and two years old and they already know the words. Oh, do they know the words? It's not fair. She got more ice cream than I did. She got to stay up later than I did. She gets to do that. She gets to do that. So how do you, how do you handle this? You take a spoonful of her ice cream to make it fair, right? And, or you hit. You retaliate. And it doesn't change with age, does it? Oh, we're so big into thinking things aren't fair. Revenge-centered plots are appealing because we can relive our own story and somebody else's story. It evokes the same feelings, and it feels good to see somebody get justice. We have a real sense that the world is unjust and broken, and it is, and so we're attracted to vigilantes. Why do we like Batman, guys? I know ladies mostly don't like Batman. But um, you know, these superheroes or these, these super cops or whatever, because they get stuff done. And nobody else is doing. Jesus says, no. Do not eat meat. Don't eat evil either, but do not meet evil with evil. Do not fight evil on evil's terms. Defeat evil with good. It may not make a very good movie plot to defeat evil with good, but it makes a great life. He gives us four examples. I want to emphasize that these are four examples. This is not an, exhaustive uh, not an exhaustive list, and therefore, it is not the crux of his message. What I mean is, Jesus is not saying, do these four things, and then you'll be perfect in all ways, right? So he's saying, I want to develop a new kind of heart in you, and here are four examples of what defeating evil with good can look like. Behind each of these examples is a specific injury. So if you're kind of a studious person and you're looking for something to take home and you want to write some notes, write one, two, three, four on your sermon notes. We're going to go through them real briefly. First is the slap on the right cheek. It was certainly a form of physical violence, but more so in Jesus' day, it had to do with being insulted publicly. It was a, a huge insult to get backhanded. I mean, I think we would agree it's an insult today too. But think of that magnified with what I said about honor and shame being such a big deal in the first century. So it's, it's being insulted. Being insulted. So number one is, is personal insult. The second example is of a person who owes their debtor, maybe a loan, a lender, more than they can possibly pay back. And they are being sued literally for the shirt on their back. Now the poor person in Jesus' day had two pieces of clothing. They would wear uh, the thing that's called the shirt in scripture. It's, a, it's kind of like a one-piece long john, like in the old days, only not with the, the flat back here, you know. But just think one-piece long john. That's what they're getting sued for. And then there's this outer garment that's, think bathrobe, the kids in the pageant, the bathrobe. And, and that's what poor people would sleep in that. It was wool and warm and they would cover up with that. And it was illegal in scripture to sue anyone for that garment. In fact, uh, they could put it as a retainer, but you had to give it back to them every night so that people would have warmth at night, right? And so here, um, this, is a, this is an example, number two, of grave injustice. I'm suing the shirt right off someone's back. 
So we've got personal insult, grave injustice. And when Jesus gave this teaching, Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. There was a law that a Roman soldier could force someone to go with them a, a, a mile. They, they could say, Collins, I want you to, to grab my rucksack and my spear and all that, and you've got to go a mile. And it, I mean, you could be doing anything. You could be at your workplace. You could be having dinner with your family. Remember honor, shame, right? You are the tribal leader of your little village. You are the man, or let's say you are the matriarch. You have great honor, and you're, um, you're leading a tribal council. Roman soldiers come up and say, you, big stuff. Grab my gear, you're going a mile. So it's incredibly degrading. This third thing is, is just degrading. You're, you're, you're occupied, your, your country, your sovereign nation's been occupied by someone else, and somebody's telling you, exactly uh, what you have to do. Indignity. The fourth thing uh, is about beggars. And beggars were frequent in Jesus' day. Think of, um, I don't know, crossing into any uh, maybe two-thirds world country where um, people are trying to sell you things. You're automatically bombarded by folks. Maybe Calcutta or um, maybe Thailand, some of the things you were saying. And just... uh, the idea here is that people are trying to take advantage of you. So being taken advantage of. And what I want us to do to make this a little more real is I want us to take a moment of silence. And I want you to think maybe just some ways that come to mind where maybe you've suffered either from insult or injustice or indignity or you've been taken advantage of. Um, Think about that. See what pops to mind and maybe write it down on your notes. And we'll just take a minute for that of silence. Before we move forward, I want to get kind of two main things out of the way. Um, This statement by Jesus is not saying that we let evil run rampant, okay? Uh, Emily read from Romans 13 earlier, in which we heard that it's the government's job to uphold justice. They carry the sword for a reason. It's the job of collective leadership to keep the peace and to uphold the law, to resist evil. I'm thinking, you know... Even in, in, in some of your classrooms who are teachers, like you can't just let the mean kid or the dominant kid just kind of talk over you and, and let things go because it's, it, it, it's better for the whole classroom to keep some order and to, to resist. Uh, and some of these kids are evil, right? <laughs> you resist some of that evil. It is the government's job to resist. It is um, the church leadership's job to, to protect the flock, right, from, from harm. It... it so there are um, governments, there are agencies, there are leadership collectives that it is their job to stand up and resist evil. Ultimately, we have to remember that justice 
and vengeance are God's. They are God's. And, I mean, God's apostrophe S. They're not their own God's, but... That's something that is so hard. That might be one of the hardest things in life for us, is to be wronged and even go to our grave having never seen justice in, in our lifetime. And it's a faith thing that God will not be mocked. In Galatians it says, God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Which is an incredibly terrifying thing and an incredibly, I think, if you've been grossly um, hurt, it's an incredibly comforting thing. And that, that's one of the calls here is to, to remember that justice and vengeance are God's. They're not ours. It's not our personal responsibility to make other people pay. Second thing is that this has nothing to do with idly sitting by while other people suffer. So this says for me to turn my other cheek. This says for me to make these sacrifices. This does not say when I'm walking down the street with my daughters and, and they're assaulted that, you know, I'm just... Go ahead and turn the other cheek, honey. I mean... I'm going to come down on somebody, and maybe I'm wrong for that, but I, I think that this is talking about a personal, this is how you and I are supposed to relate in the face of evil. But there is, there's a responsibility as a dad that I have, as a husband that I have, that you have as a citizen, you know, to help defend the weak and the poor. So we've got to see the larger teaching of Scripture here and the larger nuance of life. All that being said, this is still an incredibly hard teaching. Jesus is telling us to get creative with the one thing we can control in instances of, of insult, in instances of indignity, right? And what is the one thing we can control? How we respond. How we respond. We can surprise the enemy by acting creatively and lovingly and being generous in our responses. We take a loving offense. Okay? Turning the other cheek is an active response. I know it sounds like the weak thing to do. and The, the weak thing to do is just to run away. The weaker thing to do is to use your power to crush somebody else. But the strong thing to do, the hard thing to do, the creative thing to do, is to make yourself vulnerable and surprise somebody else. Letting ha someone have more, your coat as well as your shirt, is a way of shocking people with generosity. Going the extra mile is something you can actually control. So think of that scenario where the Roman soldier comes up, tells you you've got to carry this rucksack. You have no control over that. You can begrudgingly do it. You can... Uh, I mean, and what would happen is these... Uh, Sakari, they're called, or, or zealots in Jesus' day, they would ambush and kill Roman soldiers. You know what would happen when these Sakari, who are mostly young single men, they would ambush Roman soldiers. You know what would happen? A new garrison would come to that village. All those single guys would go to the mountains and then our families get killed. Okay, so violence escalates and creates more violence and more violence and nobody wins. That's why Jerusalem fell in 70, right? Because, because they revolted with violence and Rome came and crushed everybody there. And so Jesus is saying, you, know, you have no control of someone who forces you to go one mile. You have no control if your employer is a jerk to you. You have no control over that. But you have control how you respond. And what might happen 
if you surprise someone with going above and beyond in generosity. Giving to whomever asks does not mean give whatever people ask for. Being creative and just uh, is, is an act of generosity to those who ask. So, so, so what Jesus is saying is give to whomever asks of you. But sometimes money is not the best thing to give to a homeless person. Right? Or someone struggling on the, on the street with an addiction because what are they going to do with that money? So instead, they may ask you for money, but you may give to them in a good meal or a good conversation or some options about treatment centers or a lift to the mission. These four examples that Jesus gives us, hear this, they're not laws. They're examples. They're illustrations. They don't cover every situation. I like how Dallas Willard puts it. In every concrete situation, we have to ask ourselves, not, did I do the specific things that Jesus illustrates? But am I being the kind of person Jesus' illustrations are illustrations of? Let me say it again. In every concrete situation, we have to ask ourselves, not, did I do the specific things in Jesus' illustrations? But am I being the kind of person Jesus' illustrations are illustrations of? And you see how he surpasses, I mean, he gets past all of the, the outward behavior stuff and gets right to our heart. It's a lot harder, actually, but more powerful. And what kind of person is the kind of person who illustrates Jesus' illustrations? Oh, it's the perfect person. The perfect person. Not perfect in the Greek sense of the word. You and I have been so influenced by Greek thought that when I say perfect, you think without flaw. Never make a mistake. Never make a math error when you're doing your checkbook. You know, never make a mistake. That's, that's not what the word perfect here means. The word for perfect here carries more of a sense of complete or mature like the character of the Father displays in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's not easy at all. Uh, but it, it, it carries with it this maturity idea, whole in Christ. And maybe no teaching sums it up like this. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Seriously. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. What did it say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I'm reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lutheran pastor in Germany. He chose to stay in Germany and pastor his people even when he had options to escape to the United States. He stood up against Hitler and was imprisoned for it. He uh, was in prison in a Nazi camp and he loved his fellow prisoners, but he also loved the prison guards. He would learn their names. He would pray for their families. And they began to love him. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, they talk about the Stockholm effect where like the, the prisoner actually begins to, to sympathize with the captor. But this is like completely reversed. This is where the captor is actually growing in respect for Bonhoeffer. And, 
after, after a while, they would allow Bonhoeffer to write letters back and forth to his church. And that's how we have, uh, like, cost of discipleship, some of the things that he wrote, or because these prison guards broke the rules for Bonhoeffer because they so respected him. He so loved their families. A bomb would, ha- would fall, and all the guards would run out into safety, and the, the prisoners would have to be in this concrete place with bricks falling and stuff. The, the guards would come back after the bomb raid was over, and he would say, How are you? You guys Okay. And when they would come to work in the morning, how's your family? Can you imagine loving your enemies like that? And I wish I could tell you it made like this huge difference, like, oh yeah, Bonham. You know what happened? He was executed three days before the Allies liberated that camp. You see, following Jesus oftentimes makes for an abundant life. It oftentimes pays off, but that's not why we do it. There's an element here, and I think it's important to mention, (laughs) that Jesus is speaking as Lord, as God. And we always want to have this practical, yeah, if I do this, it'll pay off in this way and that way. It does a lot of times. That's not the point. Our King, our Savior, is saying that this is the way to live. That's first and foremost why we do it. Jesus makes it clear that God loves everyone. Everyone gets to enjoy the sun and the rain. The world goes around the sun once a year for everyone. He goes on to say, it's easy to love those who are like you, those who dress like you and think like you. But what about those who are fundamentally different? What about those who are trying to do you harm? What about individuals and groups who oppose what you stand for as the church or as a Christian or as free people? What about those who have hurt you and scarred you? People who have killed those you love. There's a deadly undercurrent that I cannot stand in American Christianity. It's unhealthy in two directions. In the one direction, there's this nationalistic, legalistic mentality that marries faith in God with so-called justice, and it calls for the church to hate marginalized groups. Single out the gay community, single out liberal Christians, or overly conservative Christians, or Catholic Christians. These groups just love to hate different people. When we couch it in justice, we're doing our duty in Christ. On the other hand, there's an evil lie that we're all supposed to be nice. And if we have anger and pain, we're not good disciples. Something must be really wrong. So you better just smile and sing the dang songs on the screen and nod your head. Both are debilitating to how people really feel. And to the fact that Jesus loves all people. Don't miss the fact that Jesus is writing this stuff not in some ivory tower of safety. He's not writing from heaven. He's writing as a fellow Jew, oppressed daily by occupation forces on, um, on one side, and he's oppressed on the other side by his own priests. And think how ironic this is. Priests of the living God, and they don't even know that the living God that they are persecuting is Jesus. That's mind-blowing. Jesus saw his people scattered like sheep without a shepherd, and he was angry. And it's okay to get angry. 
In fact, it's right and natural to recognize injustice against us and injustice against other people. We are supposed to get angry. God gave us that emotion. We can't do, I would argue, what Jesus is saying to do. We cannot really love our enemies if we're not fully aware that we have enemies. I think that some of us have been so inoculated by Christian nicety that our eyes glaze over at this passage and we say, I don't have any enemies. Listen, it's not like I'm trying to stir stuff up here, but you've been hurt. I don't know by who or when, but it's happened. We all have an enemy, the evil one. And this evil one is constantly trying to hurt us and make us hate other people. He's trying to make other people hate you too. There are people right now, boys and girls, being sold into slavery. There are people right now training young boys how to shoot guns and make bombs so that they can peel, kill people. They're telling these children that the best they could do in life would be to sacrifice their lives to kill somebody else for ideology. There are also children right now, <clears throat> some of them downstairs might be related to me, being told verbally and non-verbally that the best they could do would be to amass enough riches and comfort and status no matter what the cost. There are people who have hurt us to get ahead. And only do we realize that do we get the power of what Jesus is saying in love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because every person who is an enemy, every person who is an enemy is a person that Jesus loves and died for. Every person who does evil is a willing puppet, a willing puppet of the evil one. And we can pray for their freedom from captivity. It strikes me as I read that. I wrote that. Every evil person is a willing participant in the evil one's schemes. I am an evil person at times, right? Sometimes you and I willingly participate in non-loving ways. That is evil. We need to pray for our freedom from captivity. We need to pray that others would be free from captivity. And maybe we can't. Maybe all we can do in the depth of our pain and anger right now is pray that God would help us to want to pray. If that's where you're at, that's where you can begin. There's an element of me in working on this message and even standing here preaching it. How dare Jesus ask this of us? How can he even ask me to preach, to preach this to people, some of whom have experienced unspeakable pain? And then I'm reminded it's not about me. And then I'm reminded it's very much about me. I'm reminded that this Jesus who says these things, who gives this teaching to us, is the same God who gave himself to be insulted and unjustly treated and degraded also, he could give generously to the world. He is the one whom, while dying on the cross for our sins and rebellion, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My evil and rebellion, and I dare say yours too, put Jesus on the cross. He died 
for us. He doesn't take vengeance on me for my disloyalty. And friends, once again, I find myself poor in spirit, in need of rescue. And that's exactly where this journey begins afresh. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you gave everything for us. It's conceivable. It's conceivable that a righteous man might die for his friends, but for his enemies. That makes no sense. And, and actually, it's really hard to grasp the meaning because it's so foreign to me. It's so foreign to us, Lord. I pray that you would impress upon us. I ask for the gift that you would impress upon us. Just the incredible nature of what you've done. And I pray that you would give us new freedom in being able to love our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, being creative in fighting evil with good, I thank you that you haven't given up on us. I thank you for fresh starts, for the opportunity to repent. And I pray as we repent this evening that you would give us new life, new hope, and grace in living these teachings out. Thank you for the freedom you so desperately want to give us and have already died to give us. May we take it and live it out. Amen. Invite our communion servers forward, please.